Welcome to the Granta Podcast. To celebrate the launch of Granta 135 New Irish Writing, Granta and Foyles hosted Peggy Hughes, Sally Rooney, Lucy Caldwell and Sarah Baum in a discussion about their work, the state of Irish writing and the place of technology in literature. So Sally, we're going to hear from you first yeah. and from Mr. Salary. Okay. Nathan took me Christmas shopping in the afternoon before the hospital visit. I buttoned up my coat and wore a large fur hat so as to appear mysterious through shop windows. My most recent boyfriend, whom I'd met at grad school in Boston, had called me frigid, but added that he didn't mean it in a sexual way. <laughs> Sexually, I'm very warm and generous, I told my friends. It's just the other stuff where the frigidity comes through. They laughed, but at what? It was my joke, so I couldn't ask them. Nathan's physical closeness had a sedative effect on me, and as we moved from shop to shop, time skimmed past us like an ice skater. I had never had occasion to visit a cancer patient before. Nathan's mother had been treated for breast cancer sometime in the 1990s, but I was too young to remember that. She was healthy now and played a lot of golf. Whenever I saw her, she told me I was the apple of her son's eye, in those exact words. She had fastened on to this phrase, probably because it so lacked any sinister connotation. It would have been equally applicable to me if I had been Nathan's girlfriend or his daughter. I thought I could place myself pretty firmly on the girlfriend to daughter spectrum, but I had once overheard Nathan referring to me as his niece, a degree of removal I truly resented. <laughs> I love that that story begins with the idea of not going home for Christmas. That's a big problem in Ireland, the not going home for Christmas uh, question. It comes up in other, other places too. I wonder, Sally, how far in, in Sigrid's... Um, you know, intro to the, to the anthology, and, and she mentions this idea that we both relish and resist the things that make us Irish. I wonder how far that you could say that would be the case with your own writing. That's an interesting question, and I think as someone who, I suppose, ideologically or politically, I'm quite sceptical of nationalism and national borders, and maybe for that reason I'm sort of quite sceptical of the idea of Irishness and the idea of myself as an Irish writer. I mean, obviously I am Irish, and both my parents are Irish. I've literally always lived in Ireland. I've never lived anywhere else. So I, I couldn't be more Irish in a sense. Um, but I'm sort of nervy about the idea of national classifications. Um, and I guess it's uh, coming to Britain that makes me feel very confident that in fact I am Irish after all. <laughs> <laughs> so as a writer, who would you say your ancestors, if you like, are then? Who are the, who are the writers that got you writing and, and made you excited to be, to be a writer yourself? Um, that's really interesting and I'm not sure that I would necessarily root my influences in an Irish tradition at all. Um, I think probably I'm most energised um, by contemporary fiction um, that's being written right now. Zadie Smith, Juno Diaz, Ben Lerner, writers like that. Um, those are the ones that sort of spur me on in my own writing. Um, which isn't to say that I don't love contemporary Irish writing as well. Obviously, Sarah, Lucy, writers like Colin Barrett and Kevin Barry, uh, very much so. Um, but I think... To be completely honest, I probably am influenced just as much by international writing, um, American writing and British writing as much as I am by, by Irish writing, yeah. Sorry, I just keep banging on the Irish drum here, but I do need to ask, there's this, there seems to be this, this case that Irish writing's having a, a, a fantastic kind of boom time. I just wonder what it's like from the inside of that. Obviously, I'm just at the very beginning uh, of my sort of journey into, into writing, um, so I can only answer from, from that perspective alone. Uh, for me, it's been a hugely nurturing environment. I think we have a great... Um, culture of sort of small magazines and journals and, and small press culture, particularly in Dublin where I'm based. Uh, and I've been immensely lucky to sort of have 
people involved in that culture kind of mentor me and take me on and kind of look after my writing. And so in that sense, maybe that's been the effect uh, that the Irish boom has had on me. Maybe there is a bit more funding or money floating around and, uh, and, and I've been able to take advantage of that and I've been hugely privileged to be able to do so. Um, and obviously there's just also a lot of great writing coming out of Ireland um, and so I'm very lucky to be sort of influenced by that too. Fantastic. And that segues us into Sarah Baum, I think, to hear a bit of, uh, of your piece, Sarah, please. Okay, my story is called Green Mud Gold, which is a play on the colours in the Irish flag, which are green, white and gold, anyone? <laughs> um, it's about, I guess all you need to know really is, um, there are really only three characters. One character is the field in which it is set, and field is called field, and then there, um, there are two young cousins who go drunkenly frolicking after a wedding and they are just called by their hair colour, they are dark and fair. So I was deliberately trying to keep it simple and slightly archaic. I was also trying to get some kind of internal rhyme working, which uh, may or may not come across. Field has metamorphed over the years. From mud to beet to spud to meadow to rape to oats and then, once men in lab coats developed extraordinary pesticides so that men in mud douse boots didn't need to rotate their tillage anymore. It went from spring barley to winter wheat, from spring barley to winter wheat, from spring barley to winter wheat. And how bored field is now. Stitched beneath the hardly varying view, doomed to exist for all time to come, and having existed for all gone, even though it has not always been a field, of course, before. It was forest, before forest, ice, before ice, mainland, before mainland, sea. And now, two cousins stand at its flank, in its lee, and don't care about history. They care about eyelash curlers and fruit-flavored condoms, about the eco-friendly confetti which adhered itself to their bronze shimmer tan and dissolved, about whether or not people they don't even know think they're pretty. I wondered if you could say a bit more about your desire to play with internal rhyme, because that really stands out, both from the page, but when you, when you hear it aloud as well. After Spill Simmer, which is my debut novel, came out last year, um, lots of people after events said, it's really poetic, do you write poetry? And um, I was kind of embarrassed, I was like, no, actually, I've never written poetry, but I always say that the best, po best prose should be poetic. Um, and so I try, Sally and I were talking about this earlier, um, that you know, we, I'd, I've never had the audacity to put six lines alone on a page, but I try to infuse everything I write with some kind of poetry. Um, so with this story uh, written you know, after the novel was out and after people had made this observation, um, I thought, well, yeah, maybe I'll see, maybe I'll sort of take that, um, ratchet it up a bit. Um, and the story is it's, it's somewhat laid out to reflect the rhyme, but there's a lot in there that's... Um, that's you know, that's integrated into the paragraphs or whatever. Um, so it was terrifying to do it. I had no idea whether the, the rhyme would come across to anyone but me um, because it's something else I learned after Spill Simmer became a radio book, you know, an audio. Uh, it was a series of readings on radio. Um, but it was written by a man who was, or read by a man who was not me. And, um, and when I heard it, I was, I was kind of horrified because it had a completely different rhythm. I mean, it was a wonderful reading, but it was just not at all, the sentence didn't have the rhythm that I had in my head. So I was like, shit, maybe everything I write is, sounds completely different. <laughs> um, so Lucy, um, I'd love to hear a bit of Here We Are. Yeah, thank um, you. So this story, Here We Are, is, uh, it's a love story. Um, a love story set 
set in Belfast instead of 90s Belfast. After that, I avoided her, concert or no concert. I went with the smokers at lunch, half daring her to come and find me, half dreading it. Thursday and Friday passed without my seeing her. An awful weekend, then Monday and Tuesday, and on Tuesday afternoon, I knew I had to skip orchestra practice. On Wednesday, she came to the mobile where my class did French, in the middle of a lesson, and said to the teacher she needed to speak to me. She was a prefect. The teacher agreed without any questions. The shock and relief and shame of seeing her coursed through me, and I had to hold on to the desk for a moment as I stood up. As I followed her out of the classroom and down the steps and around the side of the mobile, I couldn't seem to breathe. How long are you planning on keeping us up, she said. I don't know, I said. I could see her pulse jumping in the soft part of her neck. A horrible, treacherous part of me wanted to reach out and touch it. Angie, I said, and from all the things that were whirling in my head, I tried to find the right one to say. The trees and glossy pressing shrubs around us were thrumming with rain. All the blood in my body was thrumming. Look at me, she said. And when I finally did, she leaned in and kissed me. It was brief, only barely a kiss, her lips just grazing mine. Then she stepped back and I took a step back too and stumbled against the rough cast side of the mobile. She put out a quick hand to steady me, then stopped. Oh God, am I wrong, she said. I'm not wrong, am I? Thank you. That final line, I've read that story now about three times and it still sort of tears your heart from your chest and chucks it across the room. <laughs> Does anyone else feel that? I feel that. <sighs> um, what I wanted to ask though was about the, the title, Here We Are. Mm -hmm. um, and that reminded me a lot of Glenn Patterson, let's call it Pattersonian. Uh, he's written, you know, uh, he Here's Me Here. Uh, one, of, one of the best lines in the Northern Irish tongue, I'd say, is Camer d'Italia. All that sort of stuff. Is that, is that particular, do you think, to the way we would speak in the North? Or? Yeah, and, um, and, and, you know, Glenn's a friend of mine and I know his work really well. And I know that he's got, his sort of project is really humane and really compassionate. And it's sort of unearthing other stories of the Troubles, maybe. You know, it's, um, uh, he's just, his most recent novel is about the DeLorean factory, like the DeLorean cars that were built in, the Back to the Future cars were built in Belfast. And um, he co-wrote the film Good Vibrations, you know, which is one of the most sort of joyful, punky films about the Troubles. And um, also sort of novelist, the novelist David Park, he said after The Truth Commissioner, that was him done with writing the Troubles. You know, he, there's this real sense that in Northern Ireland, writers a lot of writers are sort of, trying to, sort of trying to find new forms, trying to find new ways of being. And so for me, writing this story, writing the stories in my whole collection, I was trying to write other stories that maybe haven't ever belonged to what you think of as Northern Irish stories. And so this, all the stories in my collection, and you know, the story of two girls falling in love, that sort of has enough... That, the title, Here We Are, it's a sort of... It's, it's a tiny political act, but it's, it's a sort of pinning it and saying, you know these streets are ours and here we are and our story is as valid as any others. So yes, yeah, so I think it, um, it really allies with, with, with what you said and with what maybe Glenn's trying to do and, and other novelists as well. A small act of defiance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder if I could ask you then about the, the idea of a Northern Irish literature as opposed to the broader Irish one. You know, do, you think, do you think they're different do you, at all or not? Or 
one fits within I the other? I think that, um, you know, so much of the really exciting energy in Irish literature is, uh, is centred down south, as we'd say, you know, where there's, there are magazines and there's a lot of arts council support and there's a lot of, um, you really get the sense that there's a sort of camaraderie and, 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 and all that's really exciting. In the north, I think a lot of the energy for, historically, has gone into poetry. You know, we have sort of amazing poets there and a lot of the, the exciting young writers, you know, they're, they're writing poetry zines and having poetry nights and poetry events. And um, there's... There's some new writers that are coming through that are... There's a writer um, called Mick Nolan, Michael Nolan, who published a novella, novella with Salt a couple of years ago, um, who's currently working on his first novel that I think is going to be really exciting. Um, there are other writers trying to do new things, and I think, I think we all need a, a, a real kick of ener new, new energy there. You know, I think that in Northern Ireland, there, we're on to maybe the third, just about the third generation of Chinese emigrants. Um, there are a lot of Polish emigrants. There are even starting to be, um, you know, a lot more in Dublin, but there are Nigerian emigrants coming into the country. And I think when we start getting stories from those groups of people, that's going to be so interesting because all of, if you think of Irish literature, it's always that history of emigration, you know, in the diaspora. And I think it's going to be a real sort of kick up the arse once we get people who have come to Ireland, to Northern Ireland, who are Northern Irish, who start writing stories and I can't wait for that sort of energy because I think that's going to change, that's going to lift us all up, you know, it's going to make us all question things and, and, and try things in new ways. And Lucy, just a final one for me and then, then all of you, please. But um, Kevin Barry, the sainted Kevin Barry, who we keep, we keep name-checking all over the place, I love this, he was talking about his um, barracks in Sligo that he bought when he moved back, back to Sligo. And he said, you know, it had this waft of dead sergeants about it. Uh, and he knew that sooner or later they were going to try and, you know, sneak into his fiction. So I wanted to ask you all, what are the things that, you, that sneak into your fiction and what do you try and resist? Exclamation marks. My editor, <laughs> my editor, he always goes through my, um, my... I've been working with my editor, who's brilliant, um, Angus Cargill at Vapor, and I've been working with him for um, several years, and I think that I'm really good. I sent him something, and it still comes back with, with exclamation marks ringed. They keep sneak, sneaking in. I, you know, I don't know what to do. I, I'm lucky I've got him. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes in an email, I send him an, an email with, like, two or three exclamation marks in a row, just... Just to wind it up. Yeah, that, that, that. Yeah. Sally? Uh, things that sneak in. Um, parents tend to sneak in. Um, and I feel like, and I have two lovely parents, uh, and I'm so afraid that every time they pick up, you know, uh, my all my stories seem to have very troubled and troubling parental figures. And, like, no, I mean, you know, no doubt, like, of course everyone has sort of, um, difficult relationships and so I'm sure they're seeing echoes of themselves but I wish they didn't and I wish I would just stop writing about parents for good um, so yeah that's the thing I'm going to try and swear off but I'm sure it won't work <laughs> oh dogs <laughs> um, but animal, no animals in general Emmanuel Kant said you can judge the heart of man by the way he, he treats a harmless animal and I think that's you're kind of writing about people but animals are as big a part of my world as humans are so they kind of irresistibly keep coming back even though I try to keep them away. I suppose it's been suggested that the writing pre-Celtic Tiger and post-Celtic Tiger are two quite different beasts, if you pardon the pun. Would you agree with that? Would you think that there's, a, there's been a sea change in, in the tone and mood of, of Irish writing post, post the, the Tiger in the South? Well, it's, um, I, I, this probably wouldn't apply to either of you, but um, I think a lot of the weight has to do with what happened to me, was that 
five or six years ago, there were no jobs. And if you were in any form of arts, it was perfectly acceptable to be on the scratcher or the dull, whatever you <laughs> um, and, and, so, and so I moved to the countryside in the middle of nowhere with my boyfriend, who's an artist, and we, we made stuff and wrote stuff. And that was like, it wasn't like you were skewing some fine career, whereas I know the generation that went before, I was um, reading with a writer called Paul Lynch the other week. He, would, he was talking about how they all had jobs for... Um, after they came out of college, they had good jobs, mostly maybe in, in journalism or, you know, tenuously art writing-related things. And so it was viable to make a career, and you had to get a house, and you had to get, get a mortgage. And it wasn't until everything went, went crash, and we had to kind of look at what is the value of, of money, and, you know, what do we really want to, you know, drive um, f four, five, six hours a day to, to work in an office job so we can pay our big mortgage in this house in the country that we don't go to, you know. And, um, and then... Presses like Tramp Press, um, who are my original Irish publishers, and Sting Fly, and Sting Fly were there a bit longer, but and lots of little journals started to set up with no money to, to make no money, just because you know there was no um, for the love of things. You know, we we didn't really have an option, so I think we questioned those things. And I definitely grew out of that. You know, had I had I had a, a proper job, I would never have written a novel. Um, I think there's also an extent to which the Celtic Tiger was a time when. Um, every cultural voice was expected to cheerlead capitalism. And I think that has a chilling effect on good writing and, and good art production generally. I think it was a time when um, kind of pointing out what looked like the insanity of what was going on wasn't really appreciated. And then once that bubble burst and people were plunged into, and I'm not trying to make it, oh, I'm glad the recession happened because I'm not at all. It was a, you know, an immensely difficult time and continues to be um, for, for a lot of people in Ireland and I'm sure here. Um, but I think that it, it sort of woke people up to the fact that the Celtic Tiger had been a period of kind of cultural insanity. And then being able to talk about that allowed a sort of space where those journals and presses could set up and there were voices that were angry and that wanted to talk about what was going on. So I think maybe in a sense that did, that did kickstart a, a, certain, uh, a certain kind of yeah, movement or moment. Um, but again, I don't want to, I don't want to make, make light of the, of the horrible crisis that, that had to come about for that there's, to happen. Um, there's a really underappreciated novel by Claire Kilroy called The Devil I Know. Um, that was sort of reviewed as a realist novel when I didn't think it was at all. It, it was, it's that sort of Irish tradition of, you know, you meet the devil at the crossroads and you try to outwit him. It was, it's a really sort of black, playful novel that is, is all about exactly that. Um, that, that seemed to sort of get quite flat reviews and seemed to get reviewed as, as if she was somehow writing social realism or something, which she, she really wasn't. So I think, yeah, if people are interested, that's a really good, good, good one to read. Just on the point of, because you're contemporary writers, and I just sort of noticed that it wasn't necessarily brought up in each of your stories, I was wondering how do you feel individually about including the internet in your stories or technology in general? Sarah? I fucking hate the internet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I'm not a good one to ask. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it exists in things that are right because it exists. But if I can get away from it without writing historical fiction, I will. Uh, it's not a big part of my life, and I think I'm a growing trend away from it, to be honest. I can feel that discontent now. Um, that uh, I, I, you know, I, I live in a really remote place, and we have a tenuous internet connection, so I can get email, but I can't watch YouTube or anything like that. Um, and then the same with the phone, it comes and goes. And it's, it's wonderful, to be honest. I wouldn't want to be attached to it in a way. I only recently succumbed and got a smartphone. And even still, you know, it's the lore of the thing is evil, you know. I used to just read a book for a two-hour 
a three-hour train journey, but I totally fiddled with my smartphone on the worst hour this afternoon. Yeah, at the end of my story, there's, um, it's a love story set mostly in 90s Belfast and it flips to the present and um, my narrator just spur of the moment Googles the, the, the woman she was formerly in love with. And um, there's that, it's there because it, suddenly it's too close, it's sort of too easy. You can do huge things at the spur of the moment, you know, 20 seconds and, and you've done something really momentous and really huge and contacted some. So, so it's there at the end of... It's, it's there at the end of, of that story. I think it's one of those things that social media, and th it, it changes so fast. It's really hard to, to you know, find a form to capture that in a, in a story or in a play. Ender Walsh manages really well in his play chat room. You know, he manages to capture that sort of sense of, of young people there talking to each other and they're not together, but they're hugely influential on each other. And, and so maybe he finds a, a really good metaphorical way of, of, of dealing with that. Yeah, for me, I use the internet quite... I mean, I live on the internet in my real life, and I use, I use the internet a lot in, in my fiction. Um, something that I... Uh, I like, uh, so in my, in my novel, uh, there are a lot of sort of emails and, and instant message conversations that are sort of transcribed into the, into the text. And I think for me, um, that almost makes it difficult for me to write in a sort of high lyrical register, because I live my life textually, sending emails to my friends all the time and, you know, using Twitter and stuff like that, and that's all a form of text. And if it's really difficult for me to live in that text and to know that that's how, exper how I experience my life uh, and to feel that that's authentic in some way and then try and switch and, and talk in a really um, lyrical register, which again, I love to read and I'm not criticizing in any way, like lyrical language is so beautiful, but it's something that I, I find difficult to make authentic with, with my life just because it's, it's not what I live. So in that sense, I think that's sort of the influence that the internet has had on me as a writer. I think it's, it's, it's pushed me toward trying to find a more contemporary way of writing prose. It will be interesting to see. I, can, I count myself one of the last sort of generation that grew up without internet or even computers. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to see how it rewires us. It's a good question. Yeah. Uh, to follow on from that question, um, you mentioned that um, American literature has had a almost bigger or as big influence on Irish writing as, or your writing in particular as, um, as other cultures. I was wondering, um, with regards to in in incorporating contemporary culture, especially the internet, um, so when, when I think of American culture, um, I think of sort of the tradition, uh, American writing and um, how that responds to American culture, I think especially of the tradition of, say, DeLillo and um, Franzen in the past 40 years, mm -hmm. even. And um, I think they both incorporate um, current events, television, email, etc. Um, very directly into their writing and I think that in a sense because of that, do you think that because of that it speaks more to our um, our current experience, our present day experience than maybe something that's entirely lyrical could? To answer that at a, at a bit of a tangent, I think the books that have most recently spoken to my experience are Elena Ferrante. You know, I'm, I'm completely in love with Elena Ferrante's novels and they're so truthful and they're so, so transgressive. Um, and they, you know, they're, they're written by a woman who's, written, who's writing historically in, in, in the past. In, um, and, and those, and I, then I think um, uh, the stories of Lucia Berlin that I've read recently and absolutely loved. And I think you... You, you find your own way. You, I 
My first novel was published when I was very young. Um, I wrote it when I was in my early 20s, published when I was 24. And so I always sort of made up things. And I came to realise that actually you, you can write about yourself and you can write about things that happen to yourself. Um, and Elena Ferrante said in a recent interview, you know, maybe the most transgressive thing that you can do as a, as a writer, as a woman writer, is to write about your own experience. You know, to write intense female friendships or to write your youth or to... And so I think um, maybe that's more what I'm interested in than trying to capture some immediate contemporary literature or to capture some zeitgeist like that. I think the, 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 the battles that you fight are or with yourself and with the, the journey that you go on, maybe, rather than with um, someone else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and I think one of the interesting questions um, for writers, I think it's as touches on what Sarah was saying, is, like, how do we, how do we make those things literary? Like, how... And it is... It's, it's a tough... Like, I don't know how I could possibly make literary the time that I waste on Facebook. And it's possible that, like, a really good writer could actually make that very interesting. But for me, like, the endless, the endless scroll through, you know, news stories that I've actually looked at the night before, I, it's, it's really difficult to elevate that into something sort of beautiful or moving. Um, and writers who are willing to tackle that and, and willing to get it wrong, as well as willing to get it right, I think is a really interesting challenge that, that faces writers. Having said that, I don't think that the only way we can talk about contemporary experience is like, I got a text on my Snapchat app or whatever. <laughs> like, I think there's, there are ways of, you know, a, like going, you know, tr trying so hard to be at, like of the moment that you lose whatever sort of um, elevation or whatever artistic principle you're trying to follow. So I don't think it's, it's necessary to write beautifully about um, contemporary life to include like references to technology, but I do think it's a, it's a fascinating challenge that faces contemporary writers is how, how to make that literary. Mm -hmm.